0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. This is Ben Merkel's talk from the Stronghold Conference put on by Trinity Reformed Church. The title of his talk is Masculine Desire and the Gospel. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of
1: these talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. If you do, you'll get links sent straight to your inbox and be the first to know about Stronghold 2022. So make sure you go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. Thanks. And if uh, we are going to uh, be masculine as fathers, one of our mandates uh, is to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians tells us. Uh, my name is Scott Postman. I'm the president of Kepler Education. And Kepler Education is a consortium of independent classical christian teachers who are unified uh, by two things Uh, well we could say three things first by that mandate that i just mentioned from scripture uh, and then also uh, with a heart for uh, student flourishing Uh, our goal is to come alongside families our motto is to empower families by liberating teachers so we want to come alongside families and help them Uh, To uh, educate their children in a classical Christian fashion um, Believing that the parents have the mandate for health welfare and education and through the division of labor. We're here to help supply Masters in particular topics or subjects that would help your family uh, To educate your children if you needed them just like you might hire Um, a piano teacher or you might hire a math teacher. And so uh, we're here uh, to help your family and our motto to empower families by uh, liberating teachers goes a little deeper than just a mantra, just a branding mantra and so we'd like to invite you to come by our table, uh, meet with myself uh, or uh, Joffrey Swaite who's our student advisor and we'd like to unpack that a little bit and talk to you about what that means. At this time I want to introduce our next speaker Dr. Ben Merkel who's the president of New Saint Andrews College in Moscow Idaho. He holds a PhD in Oriental Studies and a Master of Studies in Jewish Studies from Oxford University. He has a masters and bachelor's degree in education from the University of Idaho. Dr. Merkel has served as a minister at Christ Church Moscow and is also a part-time campus minister with Collegiate Reformed Fellowship. That's a campus ministry of Christ Church. Dr. Merkel is also the author of The White Horse King, The Life of Alfred the Great, and Defending the Trinity in the Reformed Palatitate. Um, he and his wife, Becca, have five children. Dr. Merkel.
0: Okay, I believe I'm on, there we go. Well, we have a, you have a tough road, a steep hill ahead of us. Um, you get to go right into a second talk without a break. And I get to follow Vodi Bauckham. So (laughs) I'll pray for you. You pray for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. And we ask for your blessing on this evening as well as all of tomorrow. We pray that you'd be glorified as we turn to your word and understand what it is that you have made in your creation. We pray that you would. Be forming your son in us and I pray that you'd be pouring your spirit out on us as we come to your word and praise in your son's name amen. amen so I'm going to begin with a, a, a little autobiographical note um, I was born and raised in southern Idaho um, if you've seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite that's basically a documentary of <laughs> growing up in the 80s in in southern Idaho um, the one difference is that movie is, uh, um, a lot of people don't realize that it. it's like uh, suffused with Mormonism. It's really uh, all Mormon humor throughout. and uh, But I was raised in an evangelical Christian uh, family, Christian school, Christian church, and, and all of that. Um, I, I can't remember a time uh, when I did not uh, see myself as a Christian, know who God was, know who Jesus was. So I grew up in, in that world. And as I describe it, I I suspect that my experience um, will resonate with a lot of you. You probably experienced some of the same things. One of the things that coming to this conference and and focusing on this concept of biblical masculinity, I think back uh, growing up, what was my understanding of what it meant to be a man, particularly within the church? And um, and as I I think about that, there were really basically kind of two models that were put forward. Um, One was... Uh, the, the, the youth group leader, the, uh, the, the church uh, leader, the pastor, who generally had a very sort of soft demeanor. Uh, the, the, we might now call it the sort of metro evangelical kind of vibe. Um, my, my father-in-law would refer to it now as the Fern Pacer, which is you know the guy on the stage. And usually you can't have a, a pulpit or a podium because that makes it look like you're hiding and you need to be vulnerable. So, so you have no pulpit or, or maybe a thin little glass something, and you've got the Britney Spears microphone, and then you pace from fern to fern uh, across the stage. And that's the, the fern pacer. And the goal is always to demonstrate uh, transparency, vulnerability, and uh, the key is not to confront or rebuke, but rather to empathize, to identify with, to make you feel like I understand you and you can understand me and we're sympathetic with one another. Um, that was really the, the evangelical leader. That was, that was kind of what was held up. But one of the things I remember is that um, there was always another option, all right? And, and that was um, the bad boy, the, the bad boy side. And the bad boy side was always there, right? There, there was this other kind of masculinity that always um, popped up, and it always popped up in subtle ways, little stories you told, little jokes you made, or, or, or what I remember mostly was the stories that came out when you were around the campfire. Um, and, and that's when people started to talk about their, we might call it the BC years, right? Their before Christ years. And, <laughs> And that's when all the like nasty stuff would start to come out. But what was weird was the way you're confessing it as like, yeah, this was this bad thing I did. But you could see just like this kind of quiver of excitement as you got to tell about the bad things that you did because of the impression that it would make on everybody else. I particularly remember this like at church camps. Um, It seemed, as I remember my youth, it seems like it was nonstop church camps. Like that was all we ever did was go to summer camp, winter camp. Everything was a fall retreat. And there would always be a speaker, and the speaker was always somebody who had a story, right? And and that story was the story of a past, and the past was always a past that was gnarly, right? Um, I remember one with... Uh, this guy who had um, he had been a blackjack uh, dealer in Vegas, and he ran away with the casino owner, who was also the mob boss. Ran away with his girlfriend, and there's a chase scene and all of his stuff as they get out um, of Nevada. And it was just like really exciting, you know, and, um, and or I, I, I can just remember all these different stories, but it was always lots of fights, lots of drugs, lots of girls, lots of money, lots of glory, fame, power, and, and all wrapped up in this sin. And then it was always told, though, as the testimony, you know, I had all that and then I met Jesus. Right? And 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 they were happy to have been transformed by the gospel, but they always wanted to bring that idea in because the truth was it was the only way to hang on to the masculinity. Right? It, it was like your testimony was the way you hung on to your manliness because you couldn't find manliness in the way that you worshiped and the way you acted as a Christian. And so these things would come out in the testimonies that you would get or in the campfire. And it was always this way of like, you know, I'm this skinny little 14 year old South Idaho kid, and you would be, you would be blown over by it. You would think this is amazing. And it was weird because it would leave you with this, this competing tension because the gospel presentations, I was fully moved by. I, 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 I heard the preaching of Jesus. I believed in that. Um, I loved God, I wanted to serve God. I was completely all on board. I mean, every camp I became a Christian and, you know, I walked forward and I don't know how many times I was converted, but, and, and, and that was really drilled home about how much I love the gospel, how much I love God, how much I, I wanted to serve him. But the other thing that was really drilled home was how much I had not really sinned and, and how much, if I really wanted to be something, I was going to have to do that. And, and it was weird because you, you were simultaneously trying to evangelize these kids while also trying to make them feel um, insignificant, um, inexperienced, and embarrassed of their innocence. And, and you made them feel like if they really want to do something, they all need to fall away. They've got to all fall away, and then, and then maybe some of them will come back and then you can be both, and you can have your masculinity in uh, your testimony, and you can come and serve Christ. But it seemed almost impossible to be raised in the church following Christ and still being a man of any sort. So I, I, uh, I graduated high school, and um, I'm continuing on a little autobiographical element, um, with, with all of the insecurities I just described. And so When I graduated, I, you know, I felt like I needed to do something to kind of like make myself interesting, to experience a world, whatever. So I end up, I joined the Marine Corps in right out of high school. I did the reserve, so it was just like, you go to boot camp and all of that, and then then I could still go back to college. But when I went to college, I could say things like, you know, back when I was in the Corps, and I could tell. (laughs) I could tell my stories. I would, I would have, like, I would have machismo and swagger, and I felt like that. Okay, that's going to be worth it. So I go off to boot camp, and I still remember um, the the one story that sticks out in my mind was this day when we were supposed to do um, tear gas. So it's like the chemical warfare thing where you go in the room, they pump a full of tear gas, you wear your gas mask, and the deal was you take your gas mask off, and it wasn't a big deal because all you had to do was take it off and hold your breath for like 15 seconds. Drill instructor would let you put it back on, and when you put it back on, you have to plug the filters with your hands and blow out, and that clears all the tear gas that's out of the mask itself, and then you can breathe in relatively clean air. So I'm sitting there in the gas chamber, and I take off my, my uh, gas mask, and then I do my 15 seconds, the drone instructor points to me, and I go to put my gas mask back on, and right then I get lost in a um, very stupid line of reasoning. But I started thinking about just really being impressed with myself. Like I'm thinking of all my friends that are at home in Napoleon Dynamite, you know, land probably, hitting the thrift store and skateboarding, whatever. And here I am, like I'm in the Marine Corps. And, And I started feeling just full of myself because I can shoot a machine gun and throw a grenade. And here I am in the gas chamber. And I started thinking like, All the things that I was experiencing and tasting and doing was making me impressive. Like, I would have stories and I would have swagger. And then I thought, so I have felt the tear gas. I've kind of smelled it. I can feel it in my skin. But what would it be like to actually taste it? Because, Because if you taste it, like, I would know more than everybody else because I would have done this cool thing. And I would be able to tell people this story and they were all like, you are so amazing. Or yeah, as, as they say in North, or Southern Idaho, lucky. <laughs> they, they, they would all be so blown away by this. And so right before I go to pull it on, I just, I just took a little sip, just, just like that, that was it. And I, I know that it sounds ridiculous, but I really thought at this moment, this is gonna be this cool thing that I'll have done. Um, it's just like pouring fire down your throat. It's not, <laughs> it's not fun at all. I coughed and hacked and wheezed. I pulled on my gas mask. I didn't have any air now to clear it. So I just had to suck tear gas for the longest time. And the whole thing was just a total stupid mess. Um, but it, it dawned on me as thinking about that, like how how often do we do that? And and, and so, so you, and actually now I, at the distance that I now am from that event, could look back at that and say, well, that was idiotic, right, to think that tasting some poison would make you a more interesting and exciting person, right? It, It seems idiotic from this distance, but I actually would challenge you to think about how we think about the world around us and what it is that makes a man into something that is respectable and admirable and how often do we apply exactly that logic that if you haven't done these things, then I can't really respect you. Like, this is how you achieve some sort of status. I like, I still remember one of those church camps sitting there and, and having the youth group leader go around and ask each of these, like, 15-year-old boys. The deal was everybody had to raise their hand if they'd made out with a girl. And, and it was like, and, and, and in theory, I think it was so, supposedly so you could, like, know how to minister to the boys, uh, you know, differently, the, the guys that need it but it was a really pathetically transparent attempt to establish a very twisted pecking order between those guys that do stuff and those guys that don't. And you look at that and you think, why am I intimidated by that? Why do I think that that bit of poison, that bit of going against what God wants me to do and violating this purity, why do I think that would make me more impressive and make me have this sort of swagger in front of the other boys? But that's exactly the kind of church uh, that we that I grew up in. And I think the evangelical church at large is pretty common. We don't see poison as poison. And we're not willing to really call it for what it is. As men, I think that we have a, I'll describe it as basically, it's like an insatiable ambition for glory, okay? Uh, we, we want to have bragging rights. We want to be, um, we want to be, praised for what we do we want to have achievements and we want those achievements known and recognized it's a hunger that we have inside of us i'm sorry ladies it's just the way we're made like we're always showing off we just are that's the way we're made but listen to that again why are you angry why is your countenance fallen if you do well will you not be accepted if you do not do well sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it and we all know how this story plays out. Cain does not do a very good job of ruling over his desire, and it ends with him murdering his brother. But think up for a moment, what is it that is driving that first murder? Right? This is the first murder in human history. And it's—I mean we went from zero to murder pretty quick right? as, as, as a race. Um, we went all the way to the extreme in, in one generation when it, when it comes to um, dipping your foot into the sin pool. Uh, So what is it that gets Cain there? Cain has a desire for his work to be praised. And particularly, he wants his father to accept it and to praise it and say, good job. All right, that was great. What you did, I am pleased with that. Cain didn't get that, but he saw someone immediately next to him get what he wanted. And he could not handle it. He sat there and had that thought, just riding him and nagging him until he actually killed his own brother because he's driven by this envy. We have this desire, I think it goes through all men, we want to be known for what we do. We want to be acknowledged and recognized for our accomplishments. Uh, my, my father-in-law, I'm stealing with him from him again. Most of my stuff I just rip off from him. Um, <laughs> But, but he pointed out how in Ephesians 5, 33, nevertheless, each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's interesting, this is his observation, that, that the, um, the husband is told to love his wife, the wife is told to respect her husband. And, and those, those two commands, they get two different commands. And it's not like, I mean, yes, you want her to love him as well. But he is he is addressing and prescribing something that all of us need. Um, wives need to be secure. They need to know that they are loved. They need to be saturated in it. They need to be in a place where that is just something that is taken as a given. Men crave respect. They they need respect, and uh, and it is you can see this. It's. In little boys, uh, at the at the very youngest age, all they do is show off. And they want to be praised, they want to be respected, they want to be told how talented and amazing they are. And you can see it, uh, you, you can see the 16 year old girl who's babysitting the eight year old boy knows right off what he needs. And she praises him for the things that he does, for the way he rides his bike, for the way he uh, falls down but doesn't cry. She knows that what he needs to be told is how impressive he is we all feel it because boys and men need we crave respect we need to be known for what we do Um, now some men wear this ambition on their sleeves uh, you can see this in their their social media feed or just the, the constant little swagger everywhere they go they're just describing what they do and how well they've done it and everything is listed as another accomplishment. it's from their uh, from their workout routine to their business accomplishments to whatever it is it's just this non-stop they cannot stop telling you about the things that they do. so some guys just wear it on their scre- on their um, sleeve other men, Though, you, you'll find that, that you start to kind of, you, you know you're driven by this hunger, and so then guys start to find defense mechanisms against it. or Ways to live it out in a way that, you know, kind of makes uh, life bearable. So some guys will will win this glory that I'm describing. They'll win it vicariously uh, through their football team. You know, they, they'll start to follow sports and they're, they're looking for glory and they can vicariously uh, participate in it as their team wins glory, or their uh, their Marvel movie, you know that that they follow, or their Game of Thrones TV series. They'll they'll find some media that they can throw themselves into, and and achieve these things kind of vicariously by living along with some stupid show. Okay, um, some men stuff it down deep inside of themselves. Right, some some guys stuff it down deep, so they to you they look soft, limp, unambitious, but a lot of times what's happening is it's all being lived out in their head. Uh, Like I said, through the vicarious uh, things that they participate in or the secret lives that they might start to have in their head where they they nurse secret fantasies of their own greatness uh, that no one else knows about. And this is where you'll start to see something like a pornography habit comes in and feeds on this kind of thing because Pornography is a great tranquilizer for the ache of this unfulfilled ambition. So so we start to live this thing out in all kinds of twisted and sinful ways. Projecting it uh, in different places or or living vicariously through different things. But all of it is us trying to find glory, trying to find accomplishment. But the thing to notice is that your ambition, it wars inside of you. Okay, it's a, it's a battle that's going on inside of you. You can't just ride it uh, wherever it will take you. you. If you want to be a faithful Christian, you have to learn to actually conquer this ambition that I'm describing. All right, remember, uh, God said to Cain in, in verse 7 of chapter 4, Sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. You should rule over it. The job of the man then, you have this fire, you have this desire, and what happens is the world around you is giving you all kinds of twisted, sick, and perverse ways for you to somehow satiate this desire. But what God says to you is, you must conquer it. You must take that hunger and figure out how you ride it instead of it riding you. Uh, John Owen in The Mortification of Sin, a classic text that I highly recommend uh, that you commit to reading regularly. But he, he has this great slogan that, that um, if I was going to get a tattoo, this would probably be what it was. I'm not going to, but he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He, John Owen knew that when it comes to facing this desire, you have to have a Terminator-like sort of attitude where you you must look at the desire and you must say, I will own you, I will destroy you, I will ride you, and you will do as I say, rather than the other way around. Because when you will not ride your desire, you find yourself, as I said, in all these sick and perverse places, and you have no conception of what it is to actually be a godly man. I think the fact that our inspirations for masculinity are primarily pagan, Unbelieving, apostate pictures of masculinity. I mean, if we, if we say, give me, like, think, close your eyes and think for a moment, the most masculine Im- image, who, what entertainment do you watch that makes you say, like, that is a manly man? All right? Is it not about 100% foul, perverse, unbelieving, and at war with God? Why is that our conception of what masculinity looks like? We just heard Vodi unpack from Genesis that this thing that's given to us was given to us by God to represent and show us what he is like, to reveal himself in our lives. And yet when we try to put it on display, when we try to exemplify it, we go to things that hate God, to things that are falling away from God. Um, So... This is why I think that within the evangelical church, we have either a, a neutered leadership uh, that even though it is neutered, it finds all its power and strength in a worldly masculinity. Okay? We, we, we take a worldly masculinity and we track it through the church. James, in, in James chapter 4, tells us a little bit more about this desire that I'm describing Starting verse one, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God or do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy but he gives more grace therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble so if we go with what James said here where did Cain's murder of Abel come from where did that murder come from he says where do wars and fights come from among you Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that warn your members? You lust and do not have. You you have this desire, and it can can become sexual, which is lust. It can become anger, which would lead to the murder of Cain. It can be covetous, uh, which would lead to theft. all, All of these different sins... They come from the heart, and the heart is captured by this desire that we don't know how to control it or how to steer it or how to make it go uh, the way that it should go. Where did Cain's murder of Abel come from? It comes from the same place that your anger issues come from, right? When you deal with anger, that's the same place that Cain's murder came from, the same place that your porn problem comes from, same place that your midlife crisis comes from, Right. You, you have a desire in you to be something that is struggling. I think of that, that classic midlife crisis. I, I think that what happens is we, God has this objective for us of Christ-likeness. But what happens is we, we sort of blur this picture of Christ That that he has set before us, that we're supposed to be uh, looking to attain to. That's what. That's our goal. That's our objective: is to be Christ-like, to be remade in His image. And instead of that, we put some Conan the Barbarian image in front of us, and we say, "No, that's what I'm aiming for." Or, or a lot of you, 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 we come up with a lot, you know, um, a lot. Uh, more boring sort of idols than Conan the Barbarian. It might just be some investment manager or some CrossFit guru or some, you know, we come up with our our, our heroes that we want to be like and we set that uh, objective for ourselves. And then over life, you you're aiming for it, you're striving for it, but there's this moment where at a certain point in time, you start to realize the difference between imaginary objectives and real ones. When you're young, if you're young, you can actually blur those without any consequence. If you're, if you're 14, you could put the NFL uh, quarterback on your poster on your wall and say, that's what I'm going to be. And, for, and it looks, you know, it's possible. I suppose it's possible. When you're 52, you kind of know you're, you're not going to get there, right? There, th- that was actually an unrealistic expectation for yourself. And and so we have all these ways, sort of defense mechanisms for deferring and hiding um, from our ambitions, but there comes a time when there's a bit of a reckoning and you start to see, okay, maybe that um, investment objective I had, maybe that... Uh, financial goal or, or a physical goal or whatever you start to have those way in your rear view mirror knowing that they're never going to actually come to fruition and that's when the whole midlife crisis starts to kick in when you start to come to grips with who you are versus who you had thought you would be and you can't you can't sort it right but it comes because you didn't set Christ in the in your um, sights you didn't put him before you and it's to, um, to go back again and borrow uh, from the Marine Corps, I, I confess, I got way out of the Marine Corps, way more out of the Marine Corps than they ever got out of me. Um, but I, I don't have all these observations from them, but they got, like I said, little from me. But one of the things I remember, so I was on a tank crew, and um, we would always have to like, it seemed like we spent all of our time sighting in the, the, um, the bore the main gun, because um, even the slightest bit of droop in this long, you know, cannon, if you're out in the sun, it would droop just a little bit, but even the slightest droop could send your round way off from the target you're wanting. So you're constantly having to sight it in on the target. And one of things you realize is that when you're sighting in, and this is true of a rifle as well, the very slightest little difference over the course of this little gun tube that's you know this long or like the length of a, of a tank cannon, the very slightest little difference in that, it's, it's so small early on, but when you're sending it over thousands of yards, then that little difference is multiplied again and again and again until what looked like just the slightest fraction of a millimeter here, downrange means you're 20, 30 meters off of your target. Uh, it makes a difference over time. And what happens is within the evangelical life, we have little things that we allow into our heart, right? Little we, we replace the image of Christ that we're striving for with a man-made little idol. It's Jesus, but it's also this thing over here. And you do that and and you can have these things that creep into your heart and then you multiply this down over 60, 70 years it can take you a long ways off of your target because we are not clear about what our objective is. We don't know what it is that we want to be. So that that desire, that desire that is in you, it's this hunger and ultimately the only thing, the one thing that can truly satisfy that hunger is the approval of your Father in heaven, okay? That thing that you're aching for is the approval of your Father in heaven. That's what Cain lacked. That's why Cain was so crushed because he didn't have the approval of the Father. And this is why I think it's so significant when Jesus Christ is revealed, how is it that He's revealed? Who He is? He's revealed by a voice from heaven in fulfillment of Psalm 2, which we sang at the beginning. Remember, in Psalm 2, towards right a little ways in, he says, This is the decree I will declare to you. You are my son. Okay? The father is going to declare the sonship of Jesus Christ. And we see this at Jesus' baptism. We see it at his transfiguration. And I don't think we saw it, but I think it happened at his enthronement when he ascended to heaven, where the father says to him, You are my son, and in you I am well pleased. All right? Jesus was that perfect man he was the one who the father looked at and said this is what I wanted this is exactly what I wanted and it's a hundred percent fulfilled in Jesus Christ that's what Cain was missing and that's what angered him so much that's what drove him to murder he was missing the approval and the pleasure of standing before the father and hearing that from him and this is the good news is That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is to you. In in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, by faith, are united to the Son. And, And that means that you are in the Son. You are in Him, and all that He has is given to you. And so in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this ache, this ache for the approval of the Father, is given to you, perfected. Right? You have everything that you are striving for, everything that you are hungry for. It's all in the Son, and it's all received by faith. So this masculinity that we're describing, it's important because we're just talking about the gospel. right? That's what, that's what is being answered when uh, Jesus comes. Now let me, um, let me close. I'll wrap this up. But I want to close with one point of practical application. Okay? so if you if you taste this if you taste what i'm describing this approval of the father that we receive by faith in the son then you see how absurd it is to desire to sip the poison okay when you when you have that that's the glory that you've been looking for all along that's the hunger that you've been aching for all along so how do you live that out in this life, how do you live that out in this life? I wanna give you just one, um, one last closing exhortation. And that is that if you want, um, the one thing I can urge you to do to become more biblically masculine in the way that I'm describing, it's simply this, to develop a robust, full, dedicated, energetic and ambitious prayer life, okay? And and this is why I want you to um, think about the way that you pray. Go back to that James chapter 4 passage again. He says, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. James is looking at them and he's saying, look, you're all frustrated. You're all tangled up because you have all these things that you hunger for, you're ambitious for, and you lust, you get angry, you covet. You have this desire that is just spilling out of your heart and it's going into all of these sick and twisted channels. And he says, you can fix it, all right? You can fix that. And the way that you fix a heart that is longing and hungry and grabbing... The way you fix that kind of heart is prayer. It's and if you think about it for a moment, it's actually kind of interesting because think about if if you each of those um, each of those desires that I was describing, you can fulfill those desires through um, through sinful means. If you have a, a sexual desire, you can take that to to a lust. You can turn that into a lust. If you have a strife with a brother you can turn that into anger. You can pride, you know, we can go through all of these these different um, vices that we slip into. They all start with this desire in your heart and you taking it in the wrong direction. But what happens when you pray? What is prayer? It is simply you taking that exact same desire and instead of taking it to a lustful fantasy or an angry thought, Instead of doing that, you take that exact same desire and you just take it to God. It's it's it's. Think of it this way. Um, think of I'll, I'll use the lust example again. If you take that lustful thought and instead of taking it to whatever fantasy, you take it to God and you say in Jesus' name, do you realize how that whole thought has just been changed by the fact that you've turned it into a prayer? Right. This thing that this thing that used to like. And, and when these desires get you, it's kind of like, I don't know, um, is it the, the Incredible Hulk, you know, that picks somebody up and bangs around like, like he's in a pillow fight, right? When, when you're captured by these desires, it can feel like you're the pillow, right? And, and the Hulk is just beating you around. But when you take that exact same thought and you turn it into a prayer to God, then suddenly what God told Cain starts to happen. Instead of that desire riding you so that you're at its mercy, you start to ride it. Because as everything comes into your heart, this this fire that God gave you, this passion, this desire that God gave you, and you start taking it and you start giving it back to Him, all of a sudden you start to see what you were made to be. You start to see, there's Jesus, I'm becoming more like Him, I'm, I'm going the direction that I want to go. There's no need for the midlife crisis because you've got eternal life to keep being like what you want to be, right? You're headed in that direction and there's no disappointment waiting for you. So you want to cultivate a vibrant prayer life. And if when you do that, I think we would see the kind of godly masculinity that we all have, have missed for a long time and that our church sorely needs. Let me just read that last verse in James Verse six, one more time. But he gives grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the good news is that God gives grace in this moment, in this place where you feel like you're completely a captive and you're completely bested. It gives you the ability to actually be on top because God gives grace and those that humble themselves, he lifts up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that in all these things we simply want to be more like your son. We pray that you'd fix our eyes on him. We pray that you pour out your spirit on us that we could be more like him. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these
0: talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter.
1: Thanks.